want to talk this morning about the choices that we make in life. The choices that we make in life and what those choices each day, small decisions, big decisions, what those uh, decisions reveal about our hearts. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. I can't think of a more uh, clear-cut example in Scripture of the reasons for and um, the effects of a decision than the one that's made in this passage. Why do we make decisions? Why do we make the choices we make? And what do they reveal about us? And what are the consequences of that? And we see in this text as Abraham and Lot are looking over uh, the land that they have, uh, that, that as each makes decisions, it reveals something about the spiritual nature of their heart. Their, their convictions here are easy to see. Not because they stand and proclaim them, not because they stand up and say, I worship the Lord God Almighty, I worship Jehovah, or I, I don't am about myself. There's nowhere of that in the text. But what they choose, how they live, how they decide, indicates what's going on in their heart. Now, they're both essentially from the same position of opportunity. Uh, Abraham, I'm going to call him Abraham because Abram, I, I go back and forth, so extend me that grace this morning, okay? So Abram has more, there's no question about that, he's extremely wealthy, but Lot also has quite a bit too, he has some advantage. So, so they're not working from a position of inability or, or lack of resources, but they each have a path that they need to choose, and Lot chooses wrong. And by looking at his decisions and then contrasting that with Abram this morning, that'll help us, I pray, to evaluate our own decisions and what those decisions are saying about us and what we need to change. So uh, we're going to read this passage kind of in sections this morning. Let's read the first nine verses and then we'll develop that and, and give some spiritual principles and applications. And then we'll move into the second part of the text. So chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, more between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate me from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or to the right, then I'll go to the left. Now, we see the setting for this decision in verses 3 to 4, Abram's traveled out of Egypt. He's gone through the Negev, which is a desert down uh, between Israel and Egypt, down at the southern end of Israel. And he's gone up into Canaan, which we know is modern-day Israel. And then he settles in Bethel. Now, that's significant for two reasons. The first reason is listed right here in the text. That after, uh, in, in verse 12, in chapter 12, God had made a covenant with Abram to make a great nation out of him and to bless 
that nation and to be their God. Uh, this is the Abrahamic covenants in chapter 12 and verse 1. And, and when that covenant was made, Abraham in the middle of chapter 12 travels to Bethel and he builds an altar there to worship the Lord and to praise him for his provision and to call on his name. One phrase you'll find throughout the Bible is, and he called on the name of the Lord. It says in, in uh, Act, excuse me, Genesis chapter 4, a man began to call on the name of the Lord. Abram called on the name of the Lord. Anytime you see that, that's what we're going to do as a congregation in a week and a half. We're going to gather and call on the name of the Lord because he's an answering God. So Abram goes up to Bethel. He builds an altar. We'll talk about that concept in a couple weeks in our new series. He builds an altar, and he worships the Lord, and he praises the Lord, and he calls on the name of the Lord. And that was a perfect place to do it because the name Bethel means house of the Lord. So in other words, Abram didn't just randomly choose some place. Well, this is kind of nice, and it's flat, and, and there's shade here, and I can and build an altar here. He returns intentionally back to the place where he had met the Lord before and found strength in his presence. Now, that's, that's such an important spiritual concept right here at the outset. Here's the concept. We should always want to abide where the presence of the Lord is. Now, really let that principle sink in. We should always want to abide and dwell where the presence of the Lord is because that's where there's power, that's where there's security, that's where there's reassurance that our faith is not grounded in something that has no lasting value. Our faith is grounded in the Lord God Almighty who we just praised. So we want to always dwell, abide, be in the presence of of the Lord. David says in the Psalms, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Now for us, here's the interesting thing. That doesn't mean the temple as it did for David. It doesn't just mean coming to church. The church is called the house of the Lord. So when we gather here this morning, we're in the house of the Lord together praising him. But here's the amazing thing about what God has done for us through Christ and by giving us the Holy Spirit. He now says that you are the house of the Lord. That as a believer, that the Holy Spirit abides in us. And as believers, our bodies, our bodies, this, this, this that you have to look at. I'm sorry this morning, but this is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, you hear that verse misappropriated a lot. Well, you need to exercise because your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You need to eat right because you don't eat bacon because your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And listen, that applies. We should stay in good shape. We should treat ourselves well. But really, the concept is Romans 12 too. Present your bodies as a, tell me, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It is so much more important, and I'm not being against exercise and being in health, but it's so much import, more important that our body is a holy temple than a physical temple. So we should be evidencing clear, clear evidence that God is abiding in us. And the more the Holy Spirit abides in us, the more we abide in him. We are Bethel. Do you, do you get that this morning? You and I, if you trust Jesus Christ, if you love Jesus Christ, if he's your Savior and your Lord, you and I, not a city in Israel, you and I are Bethel. We are the house of God. We better represent the Lord well. Now, if you look back at verse 3, Abram goes back to Bethel, 
And again, he calls in the Lord. He calls in the Lord because it's a joy to abide in the presence of the Lord and because he needs discernment and direction. At the Lord's command, chapter 12, he had left home. He had gone uh, away from his family, gone away from his friends, gone away from everything that he knows at God's direction and said, go to an unknown place and all I'm giving you is my promise. Now, it's an awesome promise. I'm going to make you a nation. And you're going to have descendants like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of the sky. You're not even going to be able to count them. You're going to have so many descendants, Abram. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to be your God. Now you say, well, nothing like that happened to me this week. Man, I wish I, wish I had a covenant like that. You know what? You do. It's called Jesus Christ. God makes the same covenant to us. And if you want to break down, if you look back at chapter 12, 1 to 3, if you want to break down the covenant that God makes with Abram, it essentially comes down to this. I'm going to show you where to go, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to expand what you have, and I'm going to protect you. Just trust me. If you trust me, I'll take care of you. I'll bless you. I'll expand you. I'll give you things that you can't imagine. I will be your God, and everything will be wonderful. That really, as believers, is the essence of what God promises to do in our lives. And like Abram, he's calling us to, to trust with the same conviction. Listen, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, neither do you. I don't know what's going to happen on November, whatever it is, the day we vote. I don't know what's going to happen next January or next March or next June or next July or whatever. Nobody knows where God's going to take you and me, where he's going to take this church. Nobody has the ability to say, well, in five years, it's going to be this, or we're going to be doing this, and we're going to be accomplishing, and I'm going to have this many kids, and I'm going to be living here. You don't know that. You don't know what happens tomorrow. You don't know what happens in an hour. And you and I have no control over it. We don't know the different ways God's going to help us. We don't know the different ways he's going to protect us. We don't know the different ways he's going to provide for us when we're in trial or when we're facing opposition or when we're facing difficulty. But just because we don't know doesn't mean we're not supposed to be faithful. In fact, that's what it means to be full of faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conclusive tangibility, the assurance of things that are not seen. I don't know what happens tomorrow. I pray I wake up and I'm still breathing. I pray everything goes well. I pray that it's a strong week. I pray that I'm able to serve the Lord and minister to my family and have friends and be blessed with good health. But you know what? I don't know what tomorrow holds. Faith is trusting in the Lord, and that's what God called Abram to do, and that's what Abram did. Every great man and woman of God has had their faith stretched to extraordinary extents. Right before Abram, who was it? Noah. Noah, build an ark. 120 years as people ridiculed him and criticized him as his sons wondered, is dad crazy? And then right after Abram is Isaac. Isaac has to trust his father when his father says, let's go make a sacrifice. And then he starts wrapping him with ropes and puts him on the altar and holds a knife over him. 
And then after Isaac's Jacob, who wrestles with an angel, and God says, I'm going to make the nation that I promised to Abraham out of you, and you're going to have 12 sons. And one of those sons was Joseph. And Joseph has to trust the Lord when his brothers betray him and sell him, and he has to go in Egypt, and he gets falsely accused and forgotten in jail and has to trust the Lord. And on and on and on and on it goes. It always comes back to faith. And faith either advances or recedes based on the spiritual condition of our hearts. Now, that's the huge difference. If you look back at chapter 13, that's the huge difference between Abram and Lot. Because it's not just the choice they made. It's the personal convictions that drove those choices. So let's look at the situation in each. Verse 2, Abraham's very wealthy. But Lot's no slouch. He has his own livestock. He has his herds. Though not as much as his uncle, and that's and that's where the problem began. They have so much stuff that that they realize we can't coexist. There is enough grass, there is enough water because there's been a drought, and, and and there's all kinds of conflict that's taking place. Now the herdsmen that you have and the herdsmen that I have are starting to fight, and, and all this stuff that we have is creating turmoil. You know, abundance is not all that's cracked up to be. I'd love to try it. Don't get me wrong. Just give me a week. Just, just everything I need. But, but material abundance isn't the solution. And we see even though they have so much. Look at the text. They have so much, but it doesn't satisfy them. They're, they're fighting over all the resources. And there's probably some trash talking and some pettiness and some arguing. And, and maybe uh, somebody's claiming possession of something that's not theirs because there's so much maybe to, to think they get away with it. Whatever the case was, there's strife. And strife always comes out of selfishness. Anytime there's conflict, I will promise you there's selfishness. In your marriage, if you're fighting with your spouse, if you're not getting along, somebody's not sacrificing, somebody's not serving, somebody is, is just living for themselves. And, and the only end result of that is going to be arguments and tension and division. It may move into unfaithfulness. It may move into separation and divorce because somebody or both people are selfish. We see it with our kids there's conflict because they go through stages of selfishness, right? And independence. And they want to do their own thing. And they roll their eyes. Oh, God, come on. Are you kidding me? You guys are so old. Just, just that, that craving to do what I want and, and the constant disrespect that we're seeing of authority and disrespect of adults in our culture. So there's conflict and resentment. And that, and that gets worse if it goes unchecked. We've seen it in churches. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think all of us have been in churches where personal agendas cause division. And certainly we see it in the world. It is on display in magnificent ways right now. The selfishness of culture. Riots and race wars and division and the election and everything else. Listen, none of that is about enlightenment and understanding and tolerance. It is all about selfishness on every side. You would think, wouldn't you, look at the text, you would, you would think that Abram's people and Lot's people would be thanking the Lord every day. Lord, thank you for the abundance. So much so that we're kind of crowded, but we'll get along because, because, Father, you're good. But instead, they're not satisfied. And the conflict here is not just an issue of space. 
the Holy Spirit really draws the distinction between the two groups that, that they had trouble coexisting because of their spiritual values. And we'll look at that more in a second. But, but look at Abram's responses in verse 8. He says, you know what? I, I don't want this. I don't want conflict. Lot, you're my nephew, and I'm your uncle, and we're family, we're brothers. We both know the Lord. So, so let's, let's do the wise thing here. Let's separate. Let's get away from each other. Let's give each other some space because I don't want this conflict between us. So he makes Lot an offer in verses 8 and 9. He says, tell you what, you pick which side you want to go on. You want to go left, I'll go right. You want to go right, I'll go left. doesn't matter to me. It's your choice. You do whatever you need. Now this right here, verse 9, is the critical moment in Lot's life. Literally everything that happens to Lot from this point on stems from this one decision. But it's not the decision that determines what happens. It's the decision that reveals the true spiritual nature of his life. And look at what happens in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes. And he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Uh-oh. Because now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Now, as we said at the start, the decisions we make are an extension of our heart. And there are three truths we need to see this morning that, that have to cause us to stop and evaluate our decision-making from a spiritual standpoint. Every decision we make, we need to see it from a spiritual standpoint. Not just visceral, not just gut, not just in the moment, not just materialistic. But, but what does my decision-making say about me spiritually? First truth is in verse 10, where we see that every choice is intentional. Now, that seems so obvious, but our world does not agree. Every choice is intentional. I know some of you are old enough like me to remember back in the 70s a comedian named Flip Wilson, right? Remember Flip Wilson? Flip Wilson's whole comedy routine was centered around a statement that whenever he had made a mistake or whenever he had made a bad decision, he would say, tell me if you know it. The devil made me do it, right? That was, that was Flip Wilson. I don't know if Flip Wilson ever told a joke other than that. That was his whole career. The devil made me do it. Now, certainly the devil's a liar and a tempter. We know that. And his constant influence is to get us to sin. But listen, the decision to yield to that temptation is ours. The enemy cannot force you and me to sin. It is a volitional action, and it is based on a decision to rebel and disobey God. And here's the problem. So much of what is corrupting our, our, our culture and confusing our culture right now is the absolute explosion of the narrative that when we do wrong, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Well, it was the way I was raised. It was my parents, those crazy people. It was the fact that, that, that the world has pushed me down and, and, and demanded.
diminish me and, and I haven't had money and resources and I haven't had opportunity and, and I haven't had the right color of my skin. I haven't had the right country to grow up in and I haven't had this and I haven't had that. Now, now a lot of that borrows from the entitlement mentality we studied a few weeks ago, but, but even more so, it is a blame mindset that we are seeing so prominently displayed in the news. We have a presidential candidate who blames a lack of explanation for intentionally breaking the law. Each political party blames the other one, and they're both guilty. Each political party blames the other one for every problem in government without taking any responsibility for their role in the dysfunction. People are rioting and looting. Where I grew up in Charlotte, I know every street they're talking about. I've been on every street that they're talking about. I know some of the people that are watching that. I know some of the people in my town that are afraid. People are rioting and looting and, and, and causing all kinds of problems. And they're saying, well, society's oppressed me. And maybe society has, but that doesn't give you a right to kick in windows. And they're, and they're blaming cops for reacting in dangerous, volatile situations in which many parts of culture have declared war on cops. But, but that's fine. Cops can't do anything anymore without being scrutinized to the nth degree. Marriages and, and families are breaking up left and right. You know why? Because people are blaming everybody but themselves for what they're doing for their sin and selfishness and unfaithfulness. And no solutions, zero solutions, are going to take place until everybody starts looking at themselves and saying, here's what I'm doing to exacerbate the problem. And that starts with spiritual confession. See, Lot didn't want to do that. He's like so many people today. He was blinded to the fact that his heart wasn't right, which is why he intentionally chose what he did. Look back at what it says in verse 10. It says, he lifted up his eyes, and the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered. Now, as soon as he sees that, look at the next phrase in verse 11. It says, so Lot chose for himself. Everybody say that out loud. So Lot chose for himself. Say it again. So Lot chose for himself. He looks out. He evaluates the options. He focuses on what is most attractive, what is most beneficial, what will feed himself. And he purposely picks. That there's no zero, nada, nil, no equivocation in the text. This, this was not, well, he was forced into the decision, and based on how he had grown up, he didn't know what to do, and, and he just wanted to try to, 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 to find some advantage because he had always been pushed. No, there's none of that. Lot looked. He lifted up his eyes. He looked. He saw this land is better than that land. And verse 11 says clearly, he chose for himself what to do. He's choosing by sight and not by faith. He's choosing what will please him the most. And how many know that the choice that makes sense to us is not always what brings God's favor? Over the years, as I've counseled hundreds and hundreds of people, hundreds of couples, I've heard many people rationalize, well, a new job, a new opportunity, a, a new lover, anything other than what I have will make everything better. I, I, and I'll sit there and I'll say, 
let me tell you what's going to happen here. Let me tell you what the end game is because you're going to hurt everybody around you and you're going to walk away from the Lord. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. I've never been happy. I've, I've, I've just, everything's right. Yeah, but you're, you're abusing and denying and dividing your family. Well, it doesn't matter, though, because I'm happy. Lot chose for himself. He picked what he wanted. He didn't care about the implications of a choice. There's not one word in the text that says he called on the name of the Lord. He just wanted what would be selfishly, intrinsically good for him. And he doesn't ask for discernment. And in doing that, here's the problem. In doing that, he made himself spiritually vulnerable. And he reveals the arrogance in his heart in, in dishonoring Abram. Look back at verse 8. He's younger. Abram's the leader. He's the nephew. Abram has the word of God as his covenant. I mean, there's nobody on the face of the earth that has God's favor more than Abram at this point. And, and, and Abram gives Lot the choice of the land, even though Lot had no right to make the choice of the land. He should have had the wisdom and humility to say, Oh, uncle, thank you so much, but that's not right. Look, you're the uncle. You're the one with the favor of God. You're the one with more resources. I'm going to defer to you out of respect for you and respect for the Lord, but, but that's not what he does, is it? His character and his values show here. He immediately jumps on the offer. He takes what's best, and we don't even see a thank you note to Abram. Doesn't even, thanks, Uncle Boy, that's so nice of you. I know I don't deserve this, but, but, but you're so gracious, and, 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 and thank you. And look at what he chose. He chose, he chose the best most fertile portion of land, everything that's south and east of Bethel, which is about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. If you know your, your Israeli map, and you should, Jerusalem's kind of in the, the central southern portion of Israel, kind of between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, about two-thirds of the way down. Bethel was 12 miles north. So, so Bethel really is right in the, the geographic center of the nation. And Lot chooses everything south and east which at that time, apparently, because God hadn't destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah yet, was completely fertile and lush and beautiful. Now it's just desert. But he looks, and it's well watered, and the Jordan River's there, and he says, oh boy, I'm taking that. That, that is what I want. I'm going to be able to grow crops. My, my herds will be happy. Everything's good. And he says, thanks, uncle, though he doesn't say thanks. I'm going to take south and east. You take north and west. And Abram looks, and north and west is just barren. From Jerusalem to the, to the Mediterranean, there's nothing. So Lot chooses what he wants. If his heart had been righteous and his mind had been renewed, he would have humbly deferred to Abraham and he would have followed Abraham's leading because Abraham was blessed by God, but he didn't. So that leads us to the second truth quickly, verses 12 and 13. Every choice we make, every choice we make reveals whether we're pursuing the Lord's truth or the enemy's lies. Every choice we make reveals whether we're pursuing the Lord's truth or the enemy's lies. Now, we have to conclude that Lot's heart is already showing signs of spiritual disease because the immediate choice he makes is not to, to choose uh, just the better land, but he quickly starts to move towards Sodom. 
And when we read verse 12, I said, uh-oh, because that is an uh-oh verse. That's where our, our, our hearts ought to say, oh, there's a problem. Why is he doing that? It's not like he didn't know what Google said about Sodom. It's not like TripAdvisor didn't tell him, not a place where you want to be. All the hotels there are really, really nasty because of what people are doing. He, it's not that he didn't have good information because verse 13 says everybody knew Sodom was a bad place. Everybody knew Sodom was exceedingly wicked and the people were sinners against the Lord. There was an unmistakable reputation there. And rather than being repulsed by it, Lot is actually drawn to it. And I believe that was as much an impetus for his decision as it was that the land was green and well watered. Not only did it not scare him away, not only did he intentionally say, all right, well, that port, portion of our land is not a good area, so we're going to stay north of that and west of that. No, it says in the text that he intentionally got closer and closer. See, he had shown a propensity to yielding to the enemy. Maybe the conflict with the herdsmen was over that. But his selfish decision was certainly evidence of it. And 2 Peter 2 says Lot had spiritual insight. He knew the cities were evil. And he was oppressed by that evil every day. But he chose to stay there. What a warning that is to us. If we believe that we can abide in what is spiritually damaging to us and, and still thrive and mature spiritually, then we have bought hook, line, and sinker into the devil's lies. If you believe, Paul, I can mature, I can grow spiritually, but I can still remain in my old life and still do the old things and still hang out with my old friends and still be part of that, I can still do that, but I can still love the Lord and honor him and mature spiritually. I'm telling you right now, you have bought a bill of goods that has no value. Because it is just not true. And we can rationalize all we want. We could ignore what's obvious. And then we'll act surprised. I don't know why my life's not going right. I don't know why everything's so inconsistent. I don't know why I don't have any peace. But if that doesn't drive you away from sin, I don't know what will. Lot's not pursuing truth at this point. He makes a careless, short-sighted, selfish decision based on what is expedient and popular and pleasurable. And if his heart had been righteous, if his mind had really been renewed, he would have craved what was heavenly rather than what was earthly. Righteous decisions that come from a righteous heart are always motivated. Listen now. Righteous decisions that come from a righteous heart are always motivated by a long-term perspective that wants to please the Lord and mature spiritually. Righteous decisions that come from a righteous heart always look long-term. They always look at what the Lord wants. They always look at what will benefit me, not materially, not temporarily, but spiritually. That's the big difference between Abram and Lot. Abram's thinking long-term, God's blessing, God's covenant, God's promise, following by faith. Not knowing where I'm going next, but God's got me. Lot is thinking, what do I want now? What will please me now? What will be best for me now? What will make me happy now? So he makes this, this materialistically advantageous decision that puts him in a spiritually compromised environment 
and he doesn't care because he's selfish. And when he's selfish, he becomes spiritually indifferent because the two are intertwined. And that aligns with the last truth. Let's do this and pray. Every choice, every choice reveals whether we're gratefully satisfied in the Lord or discontented and restless. Every choice reveals whether we're gratefully satisfied in the Lord or discontented and restless. And this is where the contrast between Abram and Lot is most profound. Not only in their decision making here, but also in what becomes of their life long term. Over and over again, Lot shows his spiritual immaturity and his self-indulgence and his lack of spiritual consistency and his spiritual dissatisfaction. Listen, when you are discontented, when you are contented in the Lord, when you're contented in the Lord, you will not look for substitutes. But when your heart is not aligned with him, we become restless and discontented and we start looking for alternatives to obedience and things that will please us now rather than requiring faith. If Lot's heart had been righteous, if his mind had been renewed, he would have stayed as far away from Sodom as he possibly could. Because when we're pursuing righteousness, listen now, when we're pursuing righteousness, we want nothing to do with what will correct us. We want it to have no place in our lives. The Bible says give no place to the devil. Don't give him a foothold. Don't give him an inch of space. Don't give him an opening. Don't give him a little cut. Don't give him an ounce of help. Instead of participating in it, instead of justifying it, we should despise it. If it's going to corrupt my heart spiritually, I want nothing to do with it. If it's going to corrupt my marriage and my family, I want nothing to do with it. It's going to corrupt my spiritual influence, I want nothing to do with it. But, but this is what happens a lot. He looks at the cities. The word there really means lust. He lusted after the cities, and then he angles his tents toward them. And every day he creeps a little. Where are we going today, Lot? I don't know. Let's go. Let's, you know, we should be close to the town, I think. There's a lot of resources down there. Are, are you worried about it being? No, we're okay. Come on, we're strong. Every day. Let's, let's move the tents. Let's go. Let's go a couple more miles closer. You know, boy, looks like there's a lot going down there. I'm kind of tired of being up here watching the sheep, so... So anybody want a party? Let's go, let's go. Let's go. Every day, a little closer, a little closer, a little closer. Until eventually they took down the tents and bought a house. And Lot goes from standing with Abram, looking at the blessing of God, trying to discern what's best, to actually becoming the welcoming committee in Sodom. The text says later that Lot was the one who sat at the gate and said, welcome to Sodom. Welcome. Oh, you'll love it here. It's great. We took a residence a while back. Kids are adjusting. It's awesome. Oh, we've heard some weird things about it. No, it's fine over here. I'm fine. Look at me. Abram, in contrast, look back at the text one more time, was completely disinterested in life. He didn't care what was attractive. He just wanted to follow the Lord. That's why he could say to Lot, look, choose what you want, because material blessing doesn't matter to me. 
I just want to walk in holiness. I want to follow the covenant of God. And you know what? I may not be staying in this spot for long because God has other plans. Listen, that's faith. Realizing that we'll be most satisfied when we're content in what the Lord gives us. You will be most satisfied. It'll be difficult. It'll be challenging. There will be days where you just want to beat yourself in the head. But you will be most satisfied when you're content in the Lord's leading. And it really doesn't matter where he leads or how he leads because that's walking by faith. Abram didn't care a whit about what was well watered. He didn't care a whit about what was green and lush. All he wanted to do is follow the Lord because how many know when you follow the Lord, you lack nothing? Nothing. And look at what the Lord does and what this would done. In verse 14, remember that phrase in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and he chose what he chose. Look at verse 14. Now the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Look at what the Lord says. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north and south and east and west. Wait a second, I thought he only got north and west. No, that wasn't the Lord's plan. Lift up your eyes, look north, south, east and west. For all the land you see, I'm giving it to you and to your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants like the dust of the earth. So if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, Abram, through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram didn't move his tents to Sodom, did he? He moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. What a contrast. Every day, Lot's inching closer, 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 closer to Sodom. Every day, Abram's inching closer, 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 closer to the Lord. Abram, don't worry about it. I know you just gave Lot the choice, and you know him. I'm telling you, you, you know where that's going to end up. In fact, you're going to have to rescue him. But let me tell you right now, look north, look south, look east, look west. It's all yours, because I told you it's all yours. And because your heart's inclined to me, and because you love me, and you're following me, I'm going to bless them. Be bless you. Because you're walking and looking by faith instead of by sight, I'm going to bless you. Lot, um cho uh, Lot chose selfishly, and he moves to Sodom, and he integrates there, and he works there, and it's wicked. And eventually, when God goes to destroy it, he has to send angels who are dragging him and his family, kicking and screaming, out of Sodom, going, we don't want to go, we don't want to go, we don't want to go. And his wife is so in love with it that when God says, don't you dare look back, she goes, I got to see what I'm missing. She turns into a pillar of salt. The end of Lot's life, you may not know it. He ends up being disgraced by his own daughters who sexually assault him. And he dies in shame. Abram chooses to trust and obey the Lord. And God gives him the land as he promised. And everywhere Abram goes, he builds altars and he worships and serves the Lord. And he becomes the father of the Jewish nation. And in Hebrews 11, he's praised by God for his faithfulness and his faith. And he's blessed even to this day under the eternal covenant of God. 
One swayed away from the Lord, the other faithful and consistent. They both started from the same spot. Every decision you and I make this week, every choice in our daily life is evidence of the heart that we have. Are you rebellious or are you surrendered? Are you arrogant or are you humble? Are you resistant or are you trusting? Are you unreliable or are you faithful? In other words, are you Lot or are you Abram? As Elijah said, you can't hesitate any longer between two opinions. Choose. In other words, if the Lord is God, then follow him. And if he's not God, then walk away. But Elijah proves there's one true God. Prophets of Baal, you can cut yourselves and yell and scream for six hours. You got nada. I pray once and God moves. Who are we going to follow? What decisions are we going to make? Let's close our eyes.